I was really looking forward to doing this talk tonight because it's a little loud. <laughs> I was really looking forward to doing this talk uh, because I wanted to tell you a story that had happened to me uh, on, at, when I was a retreatant in the February retreat. I thought it's another retreat story, and it's a recent one. And I was just looking for a chance to tell it, so this is it. <laughs> and it's always good to start with a story anyway. So I came on retreat, and I was looking forward to it a lot, and I packed everything very carefully, because to be here a month, you need a lot of stuff. And I really packed everything that I needed, and I came here, and I unpacked it into my room, and I discovered that I'd brought everything except my coat. I'd come at a warm moment in the day, and I have this nice zip-up parka, and it was the beginning of February, and it was cool, and it was actually the end of the day by the time I realized it. And I live not so far away, and my four adult children live in this county. And I called the one that lives nearest to me, and uh, I said, I need that coat, please. I explained which coat, please bring the coat. And he says, I'll bring the coat as soon as I can. I'm not sure I'll get there today, but I'll get it there as soon as I can. Very busy, but I'll bring it. And I said, don't bring it to me because I'm already on retreat. Bring it up to the manager's office. And you know, he certainly knows where that is, so okay. And then the, it's the next day, and it's cold at night, and it's really cold in the morning, and I haven't got a coat. But you know, I've got other stuff. I put on many layers of sweaters. I'm not in terrible difficulty but I really wanted the coat. <laughs> and the whole morning was going by and I kept looking around and I had stopped by the managers. Did my son come with a coat? Not yet. Anyway, in the afternoon, I'm down the hill walking down and doing some walking meditation, watching the construction. And then I see his gray scion go by me and I turn around, but it's already way past me and up the hill and stops at the gate that's just at the prayer wheel. So I think, well, that's funny. Why did he go up there? He could have pulled in and parked, and he knows where the manager's office is. But all right, I turn around, I start to stroll up, and uh, I see the manager is coming down to meet him. I thought, oh, did he call ahead and say that he's meeting? And he gets out of the car, and uh, I thought, and takes the, um, opens the trunk, and takes out a big duffel bag, and I think, why did he put my duffel? Why did he put my coat in a duffel bag? I don't need the coat. It's just a coat. You can hand over the coat. <laughs> and he's standing and talking to the manager, and so his back is to me. I think to myself, you know, he's balder than I thought he was. You know? <laughs> he's missing more hair back here. But I'm hurrying up at this point so that he doesn't just get back in the car and leave, and I don't say anything to him. At which point, he turns around altogether, and I'm hurrying back up, and I'm waving, and I realize it's not him. <laughs> it's not him. It is more bald than him, and it's actually a little taller than him. And not only that, but he, a year and a half ago, gave the gray scion to his nephew, and he's been driving a red fit for a year and a half, and it's totally not him, it's totally not his car. And I totally wanted that jacket so badly <laughs> that I completely missaw. So you think, so this is not the first time that I've realized that saying I saw it with my own eyes is nonsense because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. 
That was a mind crowded with the imperative of I want my coat, and it didn't see straight. I'll tell you another story about a mind clouded with an imperative of a belief that not about needing something, but actually for a long time my husband and I lived up in Geyserville in Sonoma County, down a long country road. And so off the highway a little bit, and then you turn one way, then you turn another way, then there's a certain turn, came around a corner, at the end of which, a mile down the road, we lived. We come around the corner one afternoon. There's a house just on the corner, and the house has a dog who lives there. And the dog is always prowling around in front of the house. The dog is always friendly. There's nothing worrisome about the dog. But the dog is not up and looking at the car coming around. The dog is lying in the driveway. And there's no cars in the driveway. Usually these people have two cars in the driveway, no cars in the driveway. And the dog is lying in the driveway in a peculiar way. He's got his face over his paw like that. So I say to Seymour, there's something the matter with that dog there. He says, what do you mean? I say, that, that dog doesn't look right. It always is up and looking at cars, and it's lying with its face over its paw, and there's nobody here. And look, you see these swerve marks in the in the road that we just passed? And look, there are some dark patches there that could be blood. May, I'm sure somebody ran into that dog and that he's nursing his paw there, and there's no people there. I have to go back and check. What's the matter with you? The dog is just lying down. I say, no, 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 no. I can see that that dog isn't well and there's people aren't there. Don't continue on. Turn around and we have to go back and look at the dog. So he turns around and we drive back and we drive in the driveway and the dog stands up and wags its tail and comes over and there's nothing the matter with the dog. He's fine. Just lying down with his face over his paw, that's all. But I made the story about it. I looked at it and because I, one of my stories is, some, for whatever reason, I have a lot of psychological imaginings, it could be this, could be that, for whatever reason, a piece of the hardware that's in the, a piece of my hard drive is, somebody will be sick and need my attention and I'll miss it, and then something bad will be with them. A piece of my hardware. So I could say it's because of this, it's because of that, and it's a neurosis and I should get over it, or I could think to myself, maybe that's a good thing because I, you know, it makes me super attentive to if somebody isn't well. So if I stop for a few extra dogs that are really okay, that's not the worst, you know. Even if it's a neurosis, it's not the worst. But clearly, it was an imperative that I felt based on um, a, a thought that I had that wasn't true, but that created that imperative because I believed the thought. And it's a, really, it's a really important thing to think about because I think that what we are trying to do in this practice is see clearly. That's actually what vipassana means in Pali. It means seeing clearly how things are. And really, we'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it, the, the Buddha was not seeing about dogs' paw, paws or, or coats that came or didn't come. The Buddha was talking really about seeing clearly about the, uh, the causes of suffering and the end of suffering, much more profound than the mundane effects of it, data of everyday life. But on some continuum, they're all, it's important to see clearly in the immediacy of one's life, and it's important to see clearly in a profound way as well. And one of the things, some of the things that, that preclude seeing clearly are imperative, 
whether the imperative is caused by a need, I need the coat. When you think about it, it's not a true thought, I need the coat. Even I really need the coat. Somehow it, it, it pops up in the mind with the valence of imperative, but when I stop to think about it, suppose the coat never came. It's not that I'm not familiar with Spirit Rock or that I don't know the managers personally. I could go say, you know, my coat didn't show up. You must have a coat in the back room. Get me a coat, borrow a coat. I'll, I could take my blanket off my bed and put it around me. I could put all my sweaters on. It wasn't an important thing. But somehow when the mind is startled, it gets bewildered and it, it does peculiar things. It acts peremptorily and it often makes problems for itself. You know what I thought? I thought when I was making notes for what I was going to talk about, I thought I would, it says he'd tell the story of Michael and the coat. Then I said, what am I going to call this talk? And I said, well, I could call it, it's easy to become bewildered. Then I changed it to, it's very easy to become bewildered. <laughs> then I thought about bewildered, and it reminded me of a song in the 50s or 60s. There was a musical called, where there was a song called Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Do you remember that? You remember how to sing it? Uh, who knows how to sing it? They go, I'm wild again, beguiled again, a whimpering, simpering child again, bewitched, bothered, and bewildered am I. And I thought about it. That's the sequelae of greed, hatred, and delusion. That something something is, is beautiful and alluring. We become bewitched by it. Something is um, not pleasant to us and we want to get rid of it. We get bothered. And if we're a delusive type, which you might now be thinking I am from those two uh, examples that I gave, you get bewildered. But the, the point is more than you get to be bewitched or bothered or bewildered, all of which don't feel good. They take over the mind, push out everything else out of it so you, you don't make good decisions. They don't feel good and you don't make good decisions or clear decisions and sometimes need to go back and make amends for what you've done. Just because you've been startled by something, suddenly fall in love with something. It happens on retreat all the time. People fall in love with somebody, and every once in a while, at the end of the retreat, when they meet, it's terrific. They really do fall in love with each other. Mostly, they find out that they really, it's nothing, you know? They like the way that person walked or sat or ate or something or other, but not the whole person. But we become bewitched by it, and then we watch them. Where are they? What are they doing? How are they sitting? I see from all the laughing that you're not really uh, not aware of this. You know that it happens. And there are people you don't like because of how they sit or walk or eat or something or other. And it's totally not a factor of the person. It's totally a factor of the mind. And the truth is that everything is a factor of the mind. And when you see that, you realize that here is the work that has to be done. Do you remember the movie uh, Kundun? Who remembers that story of the life of uh, the current Dalai Lama? Uh, beautifully acted and, and apparently quite true to the story of his life. And there's one poignant moment, that many, but the one that I remember is uh, there's a small boy playing the six-year-old Dalai Lama being tutored by his teachers. And uh, 
they're asking him to recite the Four Noble Truths, which I'll mention again somewhere later on in this talk. And uh, he says, uh, it says, says something for the first noble talk, life is suffering, I, I imagine something like this. And uh, then he says the second noble truth, he says the cause of suffering is desire, which is a way that you see it often in textbooks. And uh, they stop him and they say that's something like, that's, that's too pat, that's too rote, that's not a real answer. And he thinks about it for a moment, and he says, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. And I'm so touched by that, because if he said anything like that, that's an amazing thing for an eight-year-old to say. It's an amazing thing for a 40-year-old to say, and to realize that I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. So going back to the idea of we can't see straight, we see wrong, literally, we hear wrong, we get startled then by what we see. If something happens and we get startled. I, uh, I, was at, uh, I was on retreat at IMS in the early days of my practice, and I had um, a certain amount of tension about going away on retreat fairly, as, as often as I could. And I, my family was well cared for, and their father was at home with them, and they weren't babies. And I could have done it, but I kept feeling any minute there's going to be a note on the bulletin board telling me something has happened, and I will have been the cause of Somebody needed some help, and I wasn't there. And one day I went out of the meditation hall, and there, sure enough, was a folded-over note that said Sylvia Borstein. I thought, ah, that's the note. And I reached out to get the note, and it didn't say Sylvia Borstein. <laughs> it said a whole other thing. So, but then you're all flurried up from that, because first of all, you got startled before you looked at it. And then second of all, you get startled by, I'm hallucinating, what's the matter with me? <laughs> and then you have to really calm yourself back down. I think we're getting startled all day long. We're getting startled by, I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this. Everything that's challenging is a startle. We were talking earlier, uh, John and I have a lot of conversations about the airport because John may tell you that uh, He's currently the director of the San Francisco airport, so he knows a lot about it. And uh, we talk about, as I travel through, I give him reports on how nice I think it is filled with the spirit of goodwill there, because of him, I think. But I think that's true. That's not bewildered. Anyway, it, it, there, are several places, there are several places in the airport where there are three, you told me, three yoga rooms? three yoga rooms in different terminals, and one of them is in Terminal 2. And it's just when you come into Terminal 2. No, it's just when you go through your, your luggage, uh, the security, and there's a sign that says yoga room, and there's a little, yoga, a little yogi sitting, and it says yoga room, and it, it gives you the directions to find it, and it says in the recomposure area. That's a funny word, the recomposure area. I never heard of a recomposure area. And I never heard of recompose. I heard of decompose, you know. <laughs> but 
So I figured that someone made it up, and uh, you know, and it must be the opposite of decompose. And decompose is what the mind does when you have to go through the security, and they start, you know, they start open this, open that. What have you got? Throw out the liquids, and then you make it through. It's like, whew, I did that. So then you have to recompose yourself. <laughs> if you think about it all day long today, in the course of the day. You think about how many times you got startled by something. Because the mind is getting startled all the time. You startle, you go in and you see it's kamut for breakfast. Fooey, I don't like kamut. I want that oatmeal. <laughs> but then you put yourself together. You don't make a scene about it. You know, you do something else. <laughs> but then there's something good. You say, oh, they have a lot of bananas today. That's good. I can even take an extra banana for later. Whoa, good. And if you look at back at the day, you, say, you can think about it in terms of fooey. Ugh. Wow, terrific, phooey, wow, phooey, well, think about it. Take a minute now and think, close your eyes, think about three fooeys in today that everything from the Camus to a bad sitting, quote, so to speak, since there are no bad sittings, but so to speak, bad sitting. How many people had at least one fooey moment today? That's it. How many people had a, oh, wow, terrific, like this moment? Yeah, you know, on whatever. Just now there were at least 10, maybe 15 people watching the deer out here. Didn't you feel good in that moment? In that moment, did erase the fooey of, not even the Kamut this morning, of the many fooeys since then. It erases it, because they just come through all the time. And the, the art of conditioning a mind that lives through all the wows and the fooies and makes sensible decisions and doesn't get too bewildered or bewitched, bothered. It's really imperative in the mind that it shouldn't be like this that makes it tense. And the imperative it shouldn't be like this is always wrong because it is like this. When in any moment that... Uh, I think I said the other day, I try not to say should anymore, because it's a funny, it's a, it's a strange use of a word. You say that there, there shouldn't be world poverty in a world like this where everybody could be fed. What I really mean is I wish there wasn't, and there is a way that we could feed everybody in this planet. And if we don't make people villains and have fixed views about other people, they don't see it my way. There are at this moment negotiations happening all over the place to try to work things out. And you think people ought to be able to work things out. The alternative is impossible. We, we have to work things out. And in order to negotiate, you have to come with a view that the other person could have some right ideas. It's very hard to take the idea to, to I, I work on the idea that people who voted differently from me might possibly be good people. You know? Because you think, oh, those X's that they vote that way and I vote Y or whatever. They're, I, I have the right view, they have the wrong view. We have different views. How could we work that out so we could live on the same planet or in the same city? How could we not get so confused by the imperative that everybody see it our way?
which is based on the belief system that my way is right. One of my favorite lines in the whole of the Dharma is at the end of the Metta Sutta, where it says, this is said to be the sublime abiding. The sublime abiding is not wishing ill to anyone or anything. That's the sublime abiding. You can have discerning wisdom, can say this is what I think is wholesome and this is what I think is not wholesome. That actually is wise effort. You could work on behalf of that. But to be able to say, not wishing ill on anything, yourself, anyone, any group of people, not seeing them as separate, wishing them well as you would yourself. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, I think that's an incredible line. It's maybe my favorite line, by not holding to fixed views. And the numbers of fixed views that I, you know, I, I see in myself, this is, this, oh, this is happening, this is good. The wow and the fooey is based on this is good, this is not good. How about it's just this, and it's just this. Now what? My favorite um, definition of equanimity, this is really a, a, a line that I learned from my colleague and friend Gil Fransdahl last year, is he said equanimity is the ability to say, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I love that. Do you see the difference? You say, let's see what's happening next. Means there's going to be a next. This is not a, a finished deal. See, something happens and you think, oh, this is the worst. I don't know. Or this is the best. I don't know. And you get confused by and frightened by both of them. This is the best. I have to have it now. This is the worst. I have to get rid of it now. This is what's happening. Let's see what happens next. And what can I do that would be helpful now? That is so soothing to me. You know, that, that there is a next. And we could, in that space, in between, grokking what's happening, saying, this is what's happening, without getting bewitched or bothered or bewildered. Say, what, what would be the best thing to do now? Well, here's a, here's, a, um, here's a practice that I do quite a lot, and I think we'll do it for a minute, maybe two minutes. I really do this a lot as a practice. I do it in my daily life so much. I don't so much do it while I'm on retreat where I have a lot of time to sit quietly and either let my mind just relax into this moment or if I want to, for whatever reason, be with my breath, or be attentive to thoughts. I spend a lot of time really um, attentive to the presence or absence of goodwill in my mind. I see that as my a life practice that I do here or any place else. This is not about breath practice, it's about awareness practice. Breath is a very good thing to practice on because it calms the mind and because everyone's breathing, and so you can teach it and actually learn it as a calming down and focusing technique for the mind. 
But then being attentive to all the sensations in the body, moods and emotions as they come and go, the coming and going of everything is a wonderful mindfulness practice. The presence or absence of goodwill in the mind, moment to moment, is a perfectly wonderful mindfulness practice. A practice that I do maybe more in my daily life, but we'll do it right now, is I say two sentences to myself. The sentences are, may I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. I'd like you to try that. What I do is I say it on an in-breath and breathe out. May I meet this moment fully. Breathe out. May I meet it as a friend. Breathing in and then breathe out. So I don't have to say it so fast. And each phrase gets a whole breath in and out. And then the next phrase gets the other breath in and out. And the next first phrase gets a breath in and out. And the second phrase gets the next breath in and out. You want to try that? You don't have to sit in a different way. Just sit where you are. You don't even have to close your eyes, but it's probably a good idea. Ready, set, go. Minute and a half. Did you like that? Can you feel the difference between phrase A and phrase B? You have to move so I can tell. (laughs) Did you feel the difference? Yes, no. (laughs) I like it a lot. Here's what I think. I think it's a summation of mindfulness and metta practice. I think it's the, that the, the sentence, may I meet this moment fully, is really a rededication to let me, really, let me really see things as they really are, not constricted or closed off by my biases about what I'm willing to look at or not look at. May I be relaxed enough to meet this moment fully. I actually think it is the prayer that we don't say with words every time we sit down on the zafu for every sitting. Because we sit down with a certain amount of hope 
that we're going to sit down and meet the moment fully, and that we're going to bring some amount of compassionate curiosity to it, that warm interest to it. May I meet it as a friend. May I not be afraid of it. I think that when we think that about metta practice and we think about different people and letting them into the space of our mind and heart and letting them in without being afraid of them, with discernment we can remember who we don't want to actually be with in, in, in the actual life, but who we want to be able to have in our minds and in our hearts without flinching and without being afraid. I think it was Nasargadat Maharaj who said to Jack many years ago, you can put anybody out of your life, but you can't put them out of your heart if you want to feel at ease. doesn't mean you have to like them. It just means you don't have to use up any real estate on ill will. They're in the world doing their thing. You take every step not to have them hurt you or anybody else. I really am enjoying that. I do it in situations where it's suddenly difficult. I actually, uh, talking about airports, there are so many challenges in the airport. You'll get there and you might get held up in the security line and you might have to go get searched separately and you might be later than you hoped you would be to get to the gate. And there's uh, innumerable, no, not innumerable, they are numerable, but there's a lot of instances of uh, <laughs> then you get there on time and the flight is going to take off now, a half hour later. And as a matter of fact, two hours later. There are many instances in which you need, I need to say, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. Because what's the alternative? Meeting it as an enemy? I'm not going to win. It's not going to change when the flight goes. And I'm just going to really make myself unhappy. It's really a um, vivifying practice that keeps you in life. It doesn't keep you pleased, but it keeps you contented. That's really the difference. It was an enormously important moment in my own practice when I noticed that I did not have to be pleased in order to be contented. That's such a big thing, because so often we're not pleased. It isn't what I wanted, but, I, what I, but it's what I've got. As a friend of mine said, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. To be able to say that about an illness that we get or any disappointment that we got, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I have. Now what? So, you know, the quintessential story in the Buddha's drama is his being potentially startled by the forces of seduction and the forces of aggression. So you probably all know the story uh, of uh, uh, the Buddha on the night of his awakening. Uh, I love this. It's such a beautiful, it's such a lovely picture story in children's coloring books. It's nice to color the picture of the Buddha sitting um, presumably under the tree, the bow tree. And he's sitting there and he sits down with the resolve not to get up from there until he's uh, completely clear until he's enlightened, until he gets the, the, he understands the fullness of the cause and the end of suffering. And I tell people sometimes when I tell people that that image, and I get up to that point, it says in the text 
that uh, he puts his hand down on the ground next to him in a gesture that says, I have a right to be here. And this is when he is besieged by the forces of Mara, the forces of disruption of the mind into confusion. And he puts down his hand and says, I, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I love that. It's a, it's a, maybe it's my favorite thing, the idea that we could be in a really uh, astounding situation that's potentially very frightful, and to be able to say, I am not afraid. And I tell people sometimes that uh, when I'm on retreat and my mind is distraught about something and I'm confused all of a sudden, I sit down and I say to myself, I'm not getting up from here until I have understood this clearly and I am liberated from this torment. And everybody laughs when I tell them that because here I am just saying that the Buddha did it, I'm doing it. I want to tell you, it's a very good thing to do. What have you got to lose, you know? You think hubris, I'll make the same gesture as the Buddha. But why not? I'm not getting up from here until I'm completely free of all my confusion. The truth is maybe I won't be completely free of all my confusion, but I'll be maybe completely free of this particular confusion. And why not? I have the biggest resolve and the biggest hope. It's good for you. It's not hubris. I haven't gotten totally free of all my confusions and all my taints, but I, I find it a really helpful thing to do. So on the night of his enlightenment, the, the Buddha went, he sat down, and the forces of confusion in the form of armies on horseback flinging um, spears and arrows and uh, really attempting to frighten the Buddha by uh, really uh, seeming to assault him, they come and he is unmoved, he's poised, he is sitting and radiating a protective shield of goodwill around him. And in the drawings of it, it's, uh, he's really, it looks like a shield around him, protecting him. And here come the, uh, the next assault, here come the uh, aggressive forces, and he's not frightened, he sits. Here come the seductive forces in terms of all kinds of erotic visions that would truly tempt him, because those are the things that we are bewitched by erotic uh, or sensual temptations, and we are uh, frightened by um, aggressive, by assaultive uh, awarenesses. And he sits again, he's unmoved by impervious to both of these, because he is radiating the metta shield and he's protecting himself with his good will. And it says in the text that all these arrows and uh, all the arrows and all the spears, when they hit that protective shield, they uh, turn into flowers and fall on the earth around him. And the earth was piled high with flowers all around him. So it's wonderful to see in coloring books. And I love it because it's really, would we all not like to be able to meet all of what frightens us, all of what disturbs us and confuses us, wouldn't we like to meet, us, meet it with a poised goodwill of such power that it just turned it all into flowers that fell on the ground? I think that that particular image of the Buddha, whether it's folkloric or whether it's actually happened, or 
I, whether it's a metaphor, somehow or another, I think that it is paradigmatic, really, of all of us, that every day, in every way, not, not horses on, with, with spears and arrows and not all exotic temptations, but we are continually challenged by fearful things and by seductive things. Let's think of the, the, most, the most mundane. You walk by, uh, you're walking down a street, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a Dunkin' Donuts eating a cruller. You think, how did I get in here? How did I get in here? What happened? He said, and then you think, well, I was walking along, and a certain smell went up in my nose, and it was pleasant, and before I knew it, I was in here standing at the counter and ordering a coffee and some Dunkin' Donuts or... Uh, Someone told me the story of uh, being at, um, at um, their workplace and uh, someone mentioning that uh, the newspaper had just come out with the results of a day before his election, of a municipality, let's say it was Marin, maybe it was Marin, maybe it wasn't, uh, where uh, a certain uh, initiative for affordable housing had just lost by just a few votes. And they, the person who told me that, had particularly been working very hard on the, that particular initiative. And they announced it, you know, hey, people, uh, the results just came in and the initiative lost. The person who told me said, I immediately said to my coworker, what kind of idiots are these people that they didn't vote for that before I found out that that person had actually voted against the initiative. So, uh, you know, the, the, you could walk into a Dunkin' Donuts, you could blurt out something that's not so good when you are stimulated, when you are frightened, uh, disappointed. You could do anything. Uh, uh, those aren't the most horrible things, but they really, once we begin to be mindful about the effects of not paying attention, you think, I make little troubles or maybe big troubles for myself when I don't pay attention. I think in the course of a day, well, we said the fooies and wows, in the course of a day, we get up in the morning, maybe we go to work or we check our computer, uh, or we go to work, let's say we go to work. So first of all, we have, we're going to work in time to get to a meeting on time, and there's an unexpected uh, traffic jam, and uh, they're suddenly doing construction on the highway. So that's happening. So we get a little bit upset about it. Then we hear, as we're stuck in the traffic jam uh, on the radio, that such and such a cruise line is having an end of the year special that if you call in the next two hours, you can get the special six-day cruise at one-third the price, but you have to call in the next two hours, and there's a limited number of things, and you now thinking, I can't you know, start calling the cruise line from here, I can't get out my credit card, but I won't get to work on time now to get that thing from the cruise line, and anyway, <laughs> I have my meeting at nine o'clock, and then we get to work, and we find out that the computer system is down. So now you have the meeting, but you can't be online with this other company that you're supposed to be meeting with. And then you go back to your computer to see if you're wor it's working, and then you see there's a new flirt from the website that you just joined. And you start to get very intrigued by that. And, oh, look at that, you know. And, but in the meantime, the meeting is waiting to happen. And this is just a normal day in, in the life of a person. 
And there's all these things, up, down, up, down, up, down. We're doing that all the time. And most of the time, we make reasonable decisions. Even, you know, we don't go into every Dunkin' Donuts and we don't blurt out everything. And, sometimes, and somehow or another, we get our work done, more or less, most of us. But all the time, steering between, here's the, the, here is the temptation to do this or this or this, and to be able to navigate through it. When I think about life being continually challenging, which is how I like to uh, think about the, 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 the meaning of life as suffering in the Four Noble Truths, I, I think I'd like to think more about um, it's disconcerting because something new is always happening. When the Buddha sat through that whole night and in the morning declared that he had understood what was going on, that what he really understood about uh, what causes suffering, he said, is, well, there are two ways that he said it. One of the ways that he said it is there are uh, three characteristics of experience. And the three characteristics are that everything is always changing. There is nothing that stays the same. Since everything is always changing, we're like walking on shifting sands or we need to keep shifting ourselves to be comfortable with what's going on. We have to make accommodations to what's going on. I had a friend, I, I, maybe I told you this the other day, uh, you'd stop me if I did. I had a friend who moved into an assisted living at 95 because her uh, neuropathy in her legs made it really unsafe for her to be on her own in her house. And she wrote me an, an uh, a, a really sweet note and she said, uh, I wish you'd come and teach a mindfulness class here at this local uh, facility because she'd been a student for a long time here. She said, because um, many people like myself are having trouble uh, accommodating to our new situation. And so the end of that story is I went and it's always lovely to teach anybody at any age. And the Dharma is always the same. When you teach old people, it's the same Dharma as when you teach young people. Except you have to say it louder. <laughs> but really, otherwise it's the same. But I thought about when she said, we're having trouble accommodating to our new situation. That's the story of the whole life. We are always accommodating to the new situation. From we have to go to grade school, we have to learn to do long division, we have to grow into adolescent bodies, we have to grow into our sexuality. Whoa, I didn't know about this or that. Or we have to, what do I, how do I do now? How do I, do I want a relationship? How do I make a relationship? Should I make a relationship? Should I make a family? Uh, now, wow, I have a family, I have to deal with that. What should I do about a job? All of a sudden, my family has grown up, empty nest, what do I do now? Next thing, arthritis, what am I gonna do now? And the whole thing is, what am I gonna do now? And getting used to it. And we do it and we think about, this is a normal life. We do, if it happens at least in the right order, we, and we, so we can say, well, this was not an untimely. But even if it's timely, we are always accommodating to loss. We never want to lose anything. A friend of mine's mother died just recently at, at 90. And truth to tell, she was not the most, they didn't have the most warm relationship. 
But my friend says, you know, you have to get used to a world without your mother, however old they are, and however congenial the relationship was or wasn't. We're always getting used to something. So the Buddha said everything is always changing. And he said uh, everything, is, everything is temporal, everything is contingent. All these changes are happening all the time, and everything that happens conditions something else and is conditioned by something else. And there is nothing in the largest sense of things that isn't conditioned to everything else that is happening. You know, very much the butterfly flaps its wings in New England, and there's a typhoon some months later in the South Pacific, and maybe the typhoon flapping is part of the typhoon wings. That That's a really, it's a lovely poetic vision to say that everything affects everything. How we breathe, how, uh, how the trees that the city of San Francisco is now planting on different rooftops in order to add certain, uh, in order to ab- absorb uh, 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 certain amounts of CO2 from the, uh, from the atmosphere by providing it to these trees that will breathe it out in the form of oxygen. In the largest sense, we're doing that on the whole planet. Everything's connected to everything. He also recognized in that 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 suffering is happening when the mind is not able to deal with the changing of circumstances, with the pleasant and unpleasant. Every potential, every experience that comes up has the potential of triggering a thought, I need more of this, or I need less of this, I can't stand this, or I see more, I need more of this. The opposite or the, the, diff, the contrary to, oh, this is what's happening now, let's see what's happening next, and let's see what I should do. Those are the three things that he saw. And I think that's the same for us, too. He saw it in his particular great cosmic drama. We see it with the email that didn't come and the, and the flirt that did come, and the meeting that didn't happen, and the desire for that, or the loss of that, and the need all the time to be adjusting to it, to figure out how to do things in a way that were clear decisions and uh, responses rather than reactions to the situation. I really think that's one of the ways of talking about developing wisdom in the mind, the ability of the, of the mind to absorb what's happening, grok it, this is what's happening, outside and inside, this is my response. What will be a wise thing to do now? I think it, it amounts to, uh, it's a, well, it's leading up to, uh, we'll have another two weeks here and then we'll go out in the world. And... Uh, what we'll be probably talking about in that whole last week is that practice doesn't end when we're here. This is an intensive time to practice paying attention to those three characteristics and how they come and go. And when we go out in the world, we'll just continue to practice choosing what's a wise thing to do moment after moment. The other thing that the Buddha saw, of course, and just to say of course, but it's part of the story of his awakening under the tree. So not at that moment, but when he preached his first sermon, 
sometime later. He said in it, these are the four truths that are always true. So I like to say them together, the three characteristics and the four truths that life is challenging because it's, it's um, temporal. Everything is temporal. And that imperative in the mind is suffering. I like, I like to say that better than saying the cause of suffering is desire or the cause is imperative because it sounds like first you have this and then you have suffering. But imperative is suffering. The mind held in the grip of imperative, it has to be different, is the suffering mind. And I love the... the I, I, I wouldn't change the words of the Third Noble Truth. Peace is possible. That's, that's such a good piece of news. And every time that I don't say something peremptorily or I don't get caught in a... Dunkin' Donuts or a, a pizza shack or whatever other indulgence I might certainly do. And I don't act impulsively. Or when I feel an impulse and I really say to myself, don't do this. And don't. Like the impulse to tell my partner how badly I feel about once again, he's done the same thing, da 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 da, da. If I told him for 60 years and it didn't change, it's not going to change now. <laughs> so when you think to yourself, whatever impulse takes over the mind. It's a crazed impulse, you know. It doesn't make any sense. Say, I've told you a thousand times, da 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 I don't like that. But if I've told you a thousand times and they haven't fixed it up, it's not likely that a thousand of one is going to make a difference. It's completely diluted. And to know that, when, I, when I'm able to do that, X happens. Obviously, I have a good enough relationship because it's 60 years old, so that's, that's a long time to be with somebody. But something happens, I probably annoy him as I definitely annoy him also. <laughs> Suppose he says something and my mind says, ah, how could he say a thing like that? He knows I don't like it. And it's getting ready to unroll a whole uh, rap sheet of, you know, he said that two weeks ago Sunday and last New Year's Day he said it and two years ago on Easter Sunday he said the same, whatever it is. Because you haven't, did you notice that stuff is all marked down in your mind rap sheets? So here comes the rap sheet to, and to, to fill out the annoyance, and you, and you catch it in that moment. And you, so what happened was you heard something, you felt annoyed, annoyance arose, the rap sheet is about to arise, and you choose, which is the moment of right effort, the, the, the wholesome thought, he's a really good person, we've been together a long time. This is a funny glitch that he has from time to time. He says something that I don't care for. Let's not think about that. Let's think about the fact that we did so many years together. That must mean something. I feel so relieved, like I have dodged a bullet of really making the wrong step and messing up the day for the two of us. It's not worth it. It's so, it's so refreshing. And it is a confirmation of the third noble truth. Peace is possible. We have habits of the mind, but we do not need to respond to them. We can change the habits. That's what we're doing here. The fourth noble truth is the, is the list of the uh, eight ways in which we practice that are on the prayer wheel that I'm sure that you've heard about in the last two weeks. I'm positive. Have you heard about the Eightfold Path? Surely? No? Yes? We'll have to figure that out because I like to talk about it. But the truth is the Eightfold Path in one sentence because it's time to finish is the Eightfold Path is you need to pay attention all the time. 
in everything that you do. That is the summary of the Eightfold Path. <laughs> and the, the Buddha said, I, tell, I love to tell this to people. I say, the Buddha said, you should know, uh, I tell it to people, especially when I'm teaching uh, breath meditation, attention to the breath. I say, the Buddha said, you should know when you wake up in the morning, whether you woke up inhaling or exhaling. And that when you fall asleep at night, you should know whether falling asleep happened as you were inhaling or exhaling. And I say that to people, and they roll their eyes, and they, you know, they say, well, that, you can't do that, that's impossible. I don't think he actually meant, I'm assuming he said that, I don't think he meant literally that that was an important thing. I think what it means really is you need to pay attention from the minute you wake up in the morning till the end of the day. And that's what it means, really pay attention as hard as you can as consistently as you can. Now this morning, when he said to really make your practice as continuous as, as it is, as it could be. I really want to, you know, exhort you for the same thing. Really do. You know, here you are, you have another two weeks. It doesn't mean don't take walks in, in the hills. It just means when you walk in the hill, don't plan three weeks from now. Walk in the hill and say to yourself, here I am, here I am. I'm here. I'm happy. I'm hot. I'm wishing I brought a thermos with me. I'm going back now. It doesn't matter what you wish, but that it should be what you're doing right then, not the plan for three weeks from now. If you do that, you'll see that the moment you start to do it, the trees get greener, Everything gets different. You start to appreciate the, 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 the um, trails are so well kept. It brings you back into this moment. This moment is always just what it is. And usually the response of the mind and heart is relief and appreciation. You'll be glad to be here. So thank you for paying attention. We'll sit for a minute. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, freed from the imperative of sense cravings, is not born again into suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.